Our Father and our God, we recognize that unless your spirit fans the flames of warmth over our cold hearts, they will remain cold. And so our desire this morning is that the Spirit of God indeed will speak to us at the very base of our souls, at that place where only we and you go, that place that is the very center of our being, where decisions are made, choices are made, and and lifestyle is changed, and and life direction is set. We pray, O God, that by the time that we leave here, there will be something that we have heard that came directly from heaven for us. We understand, Father, that our ears are dull, that our eyes are smudged over with with our unfaithfulness. And so we ask, Spirit of the living God, breathe mightily once again into the base of our souls. Might we walk out of here not the same people that walked in here. Might we leave with a sense that there is something everlastingly eternal that you want us to do. Something that you have granted to us by grace that makes life altogether different. Because it's being done with your glory and your glory alone in mind. I pray, O God, that something that's prayed or sung or preached or some kind of conversation had in this place in this day will leave us people that are different forever. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. She is one that is adrift. We think that there are families all over this country having been bereaved by more losses in that war that we're fighting. And I pray, O God, that you might grant great wisdom to our government leaders and that you might grant comfort to those even in Memphis who have lost people they love. Now, Father, we've come because we want to hear something from heaven. Hide that preacher who stands behind the pulpit. We're not here to hear him. We're here because we want the Spirit of God to take us on a visit to the throne room of grace. Now, Lord, use every dime that's given here for one reason and one reason alone, to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 17, and let's resume our study of that book. Uh, I need to tell you, we're going to start at verse 16. And uh, I am going to preach three times on this passage. So, but I'm going to read the whole passage this morning. We won't read all of it every week. But I do need to read the whole passage this uh, first shot at it. So you follow as I read uh, Acts chapter six, uh, 17 at verse 16. 17, 16. You follow as I read. Now, while, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered them, and some said, Why does this, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them. Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. 
For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Now that's the end of our text for this morning, but let me finish the story. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, Him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on uh, all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Therefore, Since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them was Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Folks, in certain respects, there is, there is no more fascinating story in the entire book of Acts than this one. There's something, at least to me, absolutely enchanting about Paul in Athens. The, the story of Christianity's finest versus philosophy's finest. A Christian man in a pagan city, a Daniel, who's been thrown to the lions... All of this, the splendid history of Athens, which went back 400 years before Paul ever got there. Athens was the, the native home of, of Socrates and Plato. It, it was the adopted home of Aristotle and uh, Zeno. It was the cradle of democracy. And, and yet now, when Paul arrives, Athens was long past the zenith of her influence. Plato's academy is virtually non-existent. And Aristotle's Lyceum, it was a shell of its former self. But um, Athens' past glory was far more impressive than her present. And yet it maintained its, its reputation as the Roman Empire's intellectual center or capital. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, even to this day, is a significant cultural center. 
Now, I must tell you, if, if, if left to myself, I would spend the rest of our time talking about the, the drama of this scene. As you know, I, I tend to be on the histrionic end of things. Uh, I would love to just um, point out all that is unraveling in, the, in this story. But I, I know you came here for far more than that. So here's the couple of things that I want to show you. Number one, I want, I want you to see in this text what idolatry did to Paul. And then secondly, I want you to see what idolatry has done to us. Now, again, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the most important narratives in the New Testament. Because it gives you an account of Christianity's first encounter with secular philosophy. You may not know this or may not even think this. But the culture into which Christianity was born was every bit as hostile as the one that you and I live in, if not more. What you find here, however, is Paul having been escorted safely from Berea by his friends, but they have left. They've taken a message with them uh, back to Berea to Silas and Timothy, telling Silas and Timothy to join Paul in Athens as quickly as possible. The point is... Paul is alone. He is alone in this, this city filled with idols. And although the city was aesthetically magnificent and culturally sophisticated, Paul is not impressed. In fact, we're told in verse 16 that he is provoked. Because... This wonder of the ancient world, we're told in verse 16, was given over to idols. Paul was not taking in the sights like some tourist. He, he's not spellbound by the sheer grandeur of the architecture of buildings like uh, the Acropolis, the, the city's ancient citadel that was built by Pericles, that was built on a hill so that it could be seen from miles away. Or the, the Parthenon, the thing that you visited in Nashville, the Virgin's House, dedicated to Minerva. But statue after statue and temple after temple, all sculpted by the Greek world's finest. Um, there is, um, there is a, a word that is used here in verse 16 that I want you to take a look at. Because the thing that uh, was so uh, interesting to Paul was not the beauty of the sculpturing. He was provoked by the rampant idolatry. The word that is translated, the Greek word given over to idols, is only found here in the New Testament. It's an interesting word, katadolos, which has the idea of being under them, or a city submerged, or, or smothered with its idols. There is a name that you might remember, the Roman satirist Xenophon. Xenophon once said, it was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was to find a man. The whole Greek Parthenon is there, or the Pantheon is there. The, uh, every god from Mount Olympus, Jupiter and Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, all of them are there. And Paul describes the city as being submerged, inundated, smothered. By its idols. And Paul is not, not impressed. He is oppressed. 
He is oppressed by a city that is smothered in its idolatry. Now, that's what he saw, but I want you to see what he felt. The Greek word that is used to describe, or the English word is that he's provoked. That's in verse 16. The Greek word that is used is a word paroxune. There is an English word. There is a word in the English language that comes from that Greek word. It is the word paroxysm, which Webster defines as a violent outburst of emotion. In, in the Greek world, ladies and gentlemen, that Greek word was used medically to describe a seizure or an epileptic fit. It is also a word that is used frequently in the Septuagint, uh, the Greek Old Testament. It is used in the Septuagint to describe God's reaction to idolatry. So my point is, ladies and gentlemen, God too is paroxuno. He's provoked, as is Paul. It's a, it's a strong, visceral reaction, somewhat akin to compassion. And, and, and scripture uses that word, at least in the uh, Septuagint, to describe the emotion of jealousy. Like in Exodus 34. But if I could define it, or the best I can define it, it's the, it describes the resentment or the emotion that comes over the resentment of idols. And whether that emotion is good or bad depends on whether the rival has any business being there. Stay with me. If the rival is illegitimate, then the jealousy is legitimate, like in marriage. There's not supposed to be any rivals in marriage. So if there's an illegitimate rival, the jealousy is legitimate. And Paul knows, ladies and gentlemen, how, um, how inundated, how Ill- illegitimate are all these idols, these rivals. He sees them all around him, which arises or prompts within him. These stirrings of jealousy for God's glory. As he watches men giving to idols what God alone deserves. It was the rage of truth in the face of a lie. It was the hatred of the destructive. When the constructive is ignored. And when I say it's not really ignored. Because ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that idolatry proves is that man was made for God. What idolatry proves is that man is on a search for something. He's on a quest for something that, that, uh, that is bigger than he is. Every temple in Athens simply proved that man was made for worship. And Paul grieves over seeing men give to, to a a piece of marble covered in gold, that which only God deserved. Gang, idolatry is man's abortive attempt to satisfy his own profound needs. Idolatry points to the need that he has. A need to give his life to something far bigger than he 
But once they've rejected the true object of worship, men worship anything. Like you see here. And as a result of worshiping anything, they worship nothing. You know, gang, idolatry wounds, it injures, it disables. Because you never know whether you've propitiated and placated the right God. So what you're left with is this system of elaborate ritual and ceremony. Jehovah has an exclusive right to our allegiance. And when Paul sees that given over to a rival, he is provoked. It's a very complex emotion, ladies and gentlemen. The, the, The best illustration that I could think of is, have you ever watched somebody that you love making choices and decisions that you knew would ruin them, that would destroy them? You watch a child make choices that you know are so wrong and that the end result will ruin them? What do you feel? You feel anger? But it's an anger that is born of love. Now, isn't how could it get any more complex than that? That's what Paul is experiencing when he sees idolatry in Athens. Anger born, prompted, springing from love for people as he watched them destroy themselves. Now, guys, that's what idolatry did to Paul. You have to wonder about a church, the church in the 21st century, that is so blasé about all the idolatry that surrounds her. What is the problem with the 21st century church, ladies and gentlemen? Is it love we lack? Or is it zeal for the glory of God? Is that what we lack? Because, ladies and gentlemen, this culture is every bit as idolatrous as that one. Idolatry? Where? You don't see it. You don't see it. How about um, success and career? How about approval and applause? How about fame? How about kids? Family? How about beauty? Gang. Modern man is just as inundated with false gods and is equally in need of the real one as was Athens in the first century. So tell me, what does that do to you? What do you feel? Living in a culture with idolatry surrounding you. Anything? Anything at all? Watching them worship all of their false gods 
ought to produce in us something at least similar to what Paul experienced. Gang, the culture that we live in is very much like the culture that's being described in Acts 17. We're just as idolatrous as they were. The thing that's missing is the paroxuno on the part of the people of God. Is there any jealousy for the glory of God among us? Henry Martin, who was a, um, an old missionary that early, 18th century, uh, early 1800s, he has served in a Muslim nation of Persia, and, and he said this. Listen to this one sentence. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. Henry Martin's got it. Phineas in the Old Testament had it. Numbers 25. Paul had it. Jesus had it in John 2 when he cleans out the temple. God had it. We see it described in Exodus 34. But what about us? What kind of emotion is evoked from the people of God as we watch our culture inundated with their idols? And I want you to notice what Paul does about his, his emotion. We're told in verse 17, therefore. You know what Paul does? He launches himself into this effort, this lifelong effort of reaching people who are committed to idols. Unintimidated by all this supposed scholasticism in the academia, he dives in headlong. Because he's going to reach those people who he knows are empty and are looking for something. And what they've done is miss it. He begins in the synagogue, we're told in verse 17, which was his custom. Then he moves to the marketplace, the agora, the center of Athenian public life. And there he takes on all comers. We are told that he reasoned with them, a rather Socratic method. But he's taken on anybody that wants to, wants to debate with him. Now, guys, that is what watching idolatry did to Paul. It evoked from him this emotion that's so complex that is anger slash love. And it drove him into this effort to reach them for Jesus Christ. That's what it did to Paul. Now I want you to notice what it's done to us. You'll notice in verse 18 that we're told that the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers uh, enter the battle. Who are they? What is Stoicism and Epicureanism? Well, guys, um, they're the intellectual elite. And by the way, I, I know that you didn't come here for some kind of philosophy lesson and uh, just teach me the Bible, Dr. Young. Well, but guys, you got to know this. Ideas shape cultures. Ideas shape cultures. So you got to know something about this. I'll try to be brief. 
But you've got to know something about this to help you understand your own culture and you understand things that you might even be thinking. The great competitive philosophical systems in Athens was the, 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 the philosophy of Plato versus Aristotle. And the two of them had come to a philosophical draw. That is, they had come to a philosophical impasse. They were trying to answer all of the deepest questions that men were asking. Questions like, who am I? Where am I going? That kind of business. But their conclusions differed. That is, one philosophical camp says, the answer is this. The other philosophical camp says, no, no, the answer is just the opposite. It is this. Which led to this philosophical impasse and philosophical skepticism. That is, does anybody have answers? Who's got the answers? Is there such a thing as answers? And so, Stoicism and Epicureanism, realizing that they differed on life's most ultimate questions, decide that they're going to lower their sights and simply deal with the more pragmatic issue of how do I live my life so that I can be happy? <laughs> and they went in two different directions to answer that question. The Stoics, founded by Zeno, um, they were the determinists. They were the fatalists. There were um, no accidents, um, mechanical forces behind everything, which, by the way, is very similar to the philosophy of B.F. Skinner, his uh, behaviorism. My only control is over my attitude. And so they call their people to practice what they call imperturbability. Stiff upper lip. Kesara, sarah. Bad things happen. Accept them because you can't do anything about them. Pursue duty. You can, however, get the last word over death. There was a lots of suicide among Stoicism, like you see in authors like Hemingway and his bullfights. But Epicureanism, they were the gourmets, atheistic to the core. Uh, there was no such thing as judgment. There was only this life to live. So pursue pleasure. But not unbridled pleasure. They weren't hedonists. It was somewhat of a, of a moderate pleasure. And they wanted a, a life where they could enjoy um, uh, free from pain, free from peer, fear, free from passion. What they were looking for, they were on a quest for serenity, a quest for peace of mind. Now, those ancient, out-of-date thinkers were pursuing the same question that is being pursued by many of you. And if not you, certainly your culture. Where do you think all this business about Pulling your own chain and, and do your own thing and, and look out for number one and don't worry, be happy. Where do you think all that came from? Gang, the question that is being asked today in our culture is the same one that was being asked in the Athenian culture 2100 years ago.
And the question is, how can I be happy? In our day, the technology differs. Even the philosophical names differ. But the human problem, it's the same one. Existentialism, analytical philosophy, out of logical positivism, those are the new names. But both of those philosophical pursuits are skeptical about the discovery of ultimate reality. They both deny the existence of, of absolutes, and so both of them lead us towards relativism, which is the culture that you live in. Create your own values, I'm told. You define what is culturally uh, relevant and true for yourself. Do you think that's new? No, no, ladies and gentlemen. Because it's all the attempt. It's the same attempt on the part of man for 21 centuries and longer than that to answer the question, how can I be happy? And though Stoicism and Epicureanism differed on the answers to that, those, to that question, they did agree on this much. This fanatical message that was being taught by this ugly Jew, it was at least titillating. So they asked him in verses 19 and 20 to come to the Areopagus, Mars Hill. You know, it's called Mars Hill. Uh, supposedly, Mars, the god Mars, was tried there uh, for the murder of one of the sons of Neptune. I don't know how that went. But there was another famous trial there, the trial of Socrates, who was put on trial at Mars Hill and was found guilty of impiety. And as a result, he drunk that famous cup of hemlock. Well, there's somebody else who's now on trial at Mars Hill. And his name is Paul. Paul and this new message that he brought. And what you get here, ladies and gentlemen, in this text is a picture of Christianity versus first century skepticism. And the trial has been going on for 21 centuries. Now, guys, what you get in verse 21 and I'll try to do this quickly. But what you get in verse 21 is an editorial note, but it's a very important editorial note. Look at it with me. Let me read it to you. Verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. What is it that's so fascinating about the new? What is it that's so captivating about the new? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's pretty easy to answer. Because you see, if, if happiness is your goal, and you have not yet found it, these people are thinking, maybe he's got it. 
Maybe this ugly Jew has got it. We need to listen to this, this new message. And so these people have become slaves to novelty. Like today. Anything in our day that is new is better than what we have already. Gang, does that logically follow? Of course it doesn't. But unbelief is irrational. It always has been. And when you've tried everything, searching for something to give some kind of meaning to your life, and it's all not working, boy, you're open to anything that might be new. Listen to me. I am utterly convinced that one of the reasons that we see so much infidelity in our culture, marriage is breaking down, not because people are so sexually charged, but because they long for something that is new. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll go a step further. I am furthermore convinced that homosexuality is the result of philosophical skepticism that is bankrupt. Because when you have tried and failed to find meaningful heterosexual relationships, well, it's not there. Maybe. Maybe, maybe it's in this, that's perversion. My friends, this is no diatribe against authentic progress in technology. But this 21st century adolescent slavery to fadism, to novelty... I want you to realize is rooted in philosophical skepticism, in restlessness. Man is basically bored because his philosophical attempts have all failed him. And so he has this lust for the new. And his lust for the new is nothing more than evidence that the pursuit of meaning on his part has failed. His system is bankrupt. And I say to you that some of you have run out of anything new. And you're still empty. My friends, the gospel is good news. The newest act of God in history is a decisive, 
permanent, of eternal consequence act with no built-in obsolescence. And that act took place on a hill called Golgotha. You want to hear about that, says Paul? Then let me tell you about Jesus Christ. My friends, you need something beyond new clothes. You need something beyond new furniture and new scenery. You need something beyond a new lover. You need a refreshing sense of well-being. New furniture and new clothes and a new scenery won't make you a new man. But that is exactly what the gospel offers to do for you. It says it like this. If any man be in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, All things, all things have become new. You'll never find that in your idols. Our Father, we have gotten caught up into a culture that is so desperate to find some solutions for their boredom. We, as uh, the people of God, are also finding ourselves open to the newfangled, open to what's new at Radio Shack. Because, Father, we're bored. There is no concern and grief and burden about a culture that's inundated in idolatry. There is no effort on our parts to go reach them. We're wondering if we can surf the net and find something that will titillate for a few days, maybe a few weeks. And I pray, O oh God, that you will capture our attention by this man who takes on all comers there on the Areopagus and challenges, challenges the whole world with the beautiful truth about life in Christ, new life in Christ. Father, if you've led people here today who have been caught up into this, this infantile preoccupation with the new, pray that you will show them the beautiful Savior. That they will walk out of here with something brand new. A relationship with Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, O oh God, forgive us. Forgive us that we can watch the world chase after its gods. And it bothers us not the slightest. 
we will let them plunge into a Christless eternity. And it will not trouble us for a moment. Give us, O oh God, a paroxuno of the soul as we watch. And then the determination to take on all comers as we tell them the only way to find a well, a refreshing well-being of the soul in Christ. Now, Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word and thank you for the joy of knowing that what beats at the center of our breast is life, new life in Christ Jesus the Lord. We pray, of course, in his name.